Hey everyone, uh, some of you are probably wondering who is this red-headed woman up in front. Uh, my name is Jen Mangloss, I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Ballard, and I'm really glad to be here with you. I've made it past my one-month mark, I think that was maybe Thursday this week, so uh, you haven't scared me off yet. So, I think I said this last week, but you're stuck with me. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm excited to dig into this passage today, uh, but I thought I'd let you know a little bit about who I am. You know, you're so used to Brad, you're so used to his football references. Um, and, and if you read the email this week, you might have gotten the hint that I don't do football, um, which I know is sacrilegious here in the Pacific Northwest and especially in Seattle. Some people are shaking their head. Okay, you're fine. Okay, you're my people. Um, <laughs> but I've been always more of like the, like, instead of playing school sports, I'm the kid inside reading a book or in show choir. Uh, but... When it's, if I'm not reading a book or watching TV, you'll always find me at the cinemas. I actually was there on Friday seeing Blinded by the Light. Um, and, you know, so even though I don't practice football, as I like to say, um, <laughs> someone got that. Um, it's not part of my spiritual practice, but what I do enjoy doing is getting really into Oscar season. So this fall, when some of you are, like, reading off stats for your favorite players, I don't know football terms, um, I'm going to be reading off stats for like, film releases, what's getting a good review, what critics are saying, like, I've been reading up on this since all the um, film festivals, that's where you start hearing the buzz, so, um, in some ways they're very similar and very different, uh, and just like the Super Bowl might be a very sacred experience for you, the Oscars are a very sacred experience for me, and if you come into my house, which it's hard to get an invitation, but if you get invited to my house for the Oscars, just know that there's a very strict no-talking rule. You only talk on commercials, and like in transitions when the music's playing, you can kind of say quick comments there, but I once made the mistake of inviting a friend over in high school, and she talked during the whole ceremony, and my mom was glaring at me like, who did you invite to our sacred ceremony? She's messing it up. So, um, and just like in football, where you might be screaming at the screen when, ooh, getting a little, little hot mic. Um, just like you might be screaming at the screen when a play goes down that you don't like. Again, is that right terms? I don't know. Um, I this this last year, my friends and I were yelling at the screen when a film won that we didn't want to win. So, anyways. Apples and oranges. If you like football, Brad's going to be back next week, and he'll probably be talking about his beloved 49ers. Um, yeah, silence, silence, right? Um, but if you're into film, you have that to look forward to anytime I'm preaching. You'll get some good film references in there, and maybe even some recommendations. So, uh, but this interesting story for me isn't just um, isn't just a hobby. I, I just find this fascination with narrative. Because whether we realize it or not, we actually live our lives based on a narrative that we believe at our core. Sometimes the narrative we believe in our mind is different from the narrative that we live out of at our heart. It's always interesting when you notice the, when they diverge. But uh, I thought it was interesting to start talking about narratives when we talk about the story of Jonah. We've been in this uh, book for a few weeks now. And, uh, you know, if you read chapter 3 by itself, it reads like a pretty good story. Because God shows up and talks to Jonah and says, go to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, okay. He goes to the Ninevites. He gives the word that God's given him. The Ninevites repent. And then uh, God relents and doesn't send destruction on them. 
And it seems like a pretty nice, clean story, happily ever after. But uh, there's a problem. The first two chapters of this book, and also the last chapter. But uh, in the first two chapters, if you've been with us in this series, you know that you know Jonah. Uh, God comes to Jonah and says, "Go to the Ninevites." This sounds familiar. And this first time, Jonah says, "Uh-uh, peace. I'm going to get on this boat and head out of here." Um, and then he gets on a boat to nowhere. He endangers the lives of all the sailors on board who don't realize that they they're carrying a man who's trying to escape God. Except it's hard to escape God when you're on a planet he created. Um, but so anyways, then, you know, the storm comes. Jonah says, throw me overboard, which feels a little impulsive. Um, but these poor sailors throw him overboard, probably feeling traumatized, right? Like, we may have just killed this man. <laughs> that's, that's, that's heavy to have on you. But uh, so he's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a big fish. And then he, his response in the belly of the fish is a bit confusing because he starts referencing all these psalms of thanksgiving and he kind of repents. And then the fish vomits him up. Gross, right? We always skip over that part, but that is so disgusting. Um, I've cleaned up vomit before and it's terrible and to be covered in it, ugh. So anyways, he's vomited up and here we find ourselves in chapter three. So the context is really important to take into this uh, into chapter three. So we kind of know that uh, as much as we've, you know, we want this guy Jonah to be this good, righteous man, um, up until now he hasn't been faithful. He's a very troubling hero. Uh, we might not even want to use the term hero. So we enter into chapter three with this problematic main character who finally says yes to God. So let's dig into chapter one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh. And if you've been with us in this series, you'll remember that Jonah is a, lots of like big words, you know. It's a big boat. It's a big fish. It's this great city of Nineveh. And proclaim to it the message I give to you. And this opening is calling us back to chapter one, the first time God spoke to Jonah. And it's almost identical language, except for the mention of this being the second time. And Jonah has a special distinction because he is the only prophet in the Bible who had to be told twice by God to go give his message. So not exactly high praise, right? But God isn't just asking Jonah twice. God is going after Nineveh twice. And if you're reading this from a Jewish perspective, you might be asking yourself the question, why is God trying so hard to uh, share this word with a nation other than Israel? Because for Israel, the assumption is that God is the God of us and, and the Israelites alone. But in reality, God cares about people all over the world. And we see this in the Old Testament, too. We see this in Amos 9-7, when God mentions that he rescued the Ethiopians and the Philistines. And in Isaiah 19-23-24, with the Egyptians and Assyrians. So we have evidence that God is not just concerned with the Israelites. And the word he uses for go is expressed in Hebrew with two words. Uh, Together they mean go now, or go immediately. Kind of like... Jonah, don't go get on a boat again, but go now to Nineveh before you change your mind. So there's a lot of like movement and action in these words being used. But let's uh, jump back into verse 3. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and in Hebrew it's just Jonah went, but his going implies his obedience. He didn't get on a boat, so this is good. Uh, and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
So the first thing you might notice is he doesn't mention God. Like, he goes to Nineveh, he shows up, and he gives this message, but he doesn't talk about God at all, which is kind of problematic when you're giving a word from God. Uh, communicators and journalists, I used to study journalism back in the day, and the questions you're always trying to answer when you're communicating is who, what, where, when, why, and how. And that's a good way to like, let people know like, what you're actually trying to say. And if we're using that same, um, same, you know, kind of, uh, same idea for Jonah, he completely botches it. Because all he gives us is the, the what, the where, and the when. And it's kind of miraculous that the Ninevites even listened to this message and even responded. Because he doesn't mention why they're going to be overthrown, who's doing the overthrowing, or what exactly overthrowing would mean. And actually the word overthrow uh, in Hebrew is hapak. And it can mean two things. It can mean utter destruction. If you think back to Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah, that was that kind of destruction, utter destruction. But hapak also can mean to turn around and bring to repentance. So in this context then, it has implications of utter destruction or repentant life. But when the Ninevites hear this word hapak, they think destruction's coming. And uh, they respond. We'll see soon. But uh, there's different ways to look at how Jonah approached this message to Nineveh. Um, You know, when we see this, we can see there sure seems to be some apathy there. Like, he's not trying that hard. Uh, It's almost like when you ask a child, or if you've uh, been around a teenager, if you ask them to apologize for something, it's the worst thing ever, because, like, they look down at the ground, they sigh, I'm sorry. And that R just rolls out forever and ever. And you know they're not apologetic. You know they're not sorry, right? And uh, this is kind of Jonah's response. You know, he's like, I imagine him just kind of dragging his feet to Nineveh. 40 days till you guys are desolated. You can almost hear him saying suckers at the end. Um, So he's not bringing his A game to this message to Nineveh. Uh, But what does Nineveh do with this message? Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, uh, put on the sackcloth. So they all repent, which, that was easy, right? You know, for all this commotion that Jonah makes about not going, he gives like a kind of mediocre word to the people and they react and respond and like, you know, go into full repentance mode. And this reminds me of uh, if you've ever been to Bible camp and if your group was going to go out and evangelize the next day and they always were trying to like pump you up and not, you know, kind of for anyone who had nerves about it, they're like speaking to you like, it's okay because like, check out this story when Bob went out and he went to this neighborhood and the entire neighborhood came to God. Like, that could happen to you. That's kind of what this feels like because it was so easy. Uh, Which is funny because sometimes we have these apprehensions about when God calls us to something, but sometimes we're just like the last step in a long chain that he's been working out. So we don't know the whole story of Nineveh, but it's interesting that Jonah comes in and gives this really kind of mediocre message and they respond. Um, This reminds me of Saul in the Bible, in the um, New Testament, who we now know as Paul. But when he showed up, you know, and he had this encounter with God, it was shocking to that community because he had been persecuting Christians. He'd been hunting them down. Like, that was his mission in life. And then he shows up and says, I've seen the light. I've come, you know, I've come to believe Jesus the Messiah. Um, 
And that was shocking to the people there. And that's the type of shock it would have been with Nineveh, like this evil, wicked nation. And they hear one word of like, hey, destruction's coming, and they just lose it. And they go, okay, we're following this God, Jonah, who you haven't even mentioned. Um, And I always think it's helpful to take a minute just to imagine the person you think least likely coming to God. And it might be someone you actually know, or it might just be the idea of someone. And if you've got that person in your mind, imagine them walking through those doors right now, and they're proclaiming the name of Jesus. That'd be shocking, wouldn't it? And that's the same level of shock that um, with having the Ninevites repent. Like, wait, them? No, not them. Like, Jonah, like, yeah, he's a good man of God, but the Ninevites, they're terrible. They're brutal. And yet, here they are showing this, like, repentant heart. Uh, And what's even amazing is that their repentance isn't connected with Jonah's efforts. You know, he wasn't preaching this fiery sermon like I mentioned. It wasn't like, oh, he was such a talented speaker and they were just swayed by his words. No, like, he gave, like, the least convincing sermon ever. And yet, that word stirred their hearts. God paved the way for them to repent and turn to a different way of life. But it doesn't just stop with the Ninevites. Because in chapter, or verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So again, we see this response, this repentant response involving sackcloth, involving fasting, we see ashes, and this type of response is a typical act of repentance in the Bible. In Joel uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, um, the prophet says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. And we see these similar types of responses of what, what repentance looks like in Jeremiah 4.8 and Nehemiah 9.1. And so a lot of times when we talk about repentance, we talk about turning away from our former way of life, turning away from sin. But actually, uh, repentance is also a mourning over our sin. And it's a humbling of ourselves. So everything that Nineveh is doing is this act of, humble, of humiliation. It's this act of mourning. Because um, some of these practices are what would happen if you were mourning the death of someone. You'd put on sackcloth. You might cover your face with ash. Uh, and what's interesting with the, specifically with the mention of ash is Genesis 2-7 tells us that God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. So in the act of repentance, dust is this call back to our origins. So sometimes as humans, we're tempted to see ourselves as high and mighty, but the reality is God knows that we are, we are mere dust. We're dust in the wind. And it's out of death that humans emerge, but also when we die, often we're buried, we return to the ground. And so that's the significance if you've ever heard the saying of ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Like this is from where we come and this is where we end up. Um, So repentance is this call back to death and to life. And it involves a death to our old ways and a turn to obedience. But sometimes we see obedience just as, I'm going to follow God because he tells me to. 
But actually, there's more than just obedience. You know, when Christ walked the earth, he walked his life in a certain way. And so the idea is, like, we're not just, you know, just doing what Jesus did because that's a nice idea, but actually he knows the the good way of life, the rhythm of life that leads to life abundant. And so this idea of repentance is returning from what leads to death, literally and figuratively, to walk into uh, deep, true life with God. But let's go back to verse 7. So this is the proclamation that the king issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and the nobles, do not let people or... uh, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Yeah, the animals. This is the part that cracks me up because this whole week I've been sitting with this passage and reading about it and going, yeah, I mean, this has got to mean like any animal in your household, your cats, your dogs, your cows, maybe your pet goldfish, Larry. Um, they were all participating in this communal act of repentance. And the image in my head this whole week as I've been sitting with this passage is a chicken, like covered in sackcloth, like maybe some ash on its head, like balking around, kind of going, what is going on here? <laughs> And it is funny. I think it's okay for us to laugh at that and laugh at the imagery of that. Uh, Jonah is a very, has a lot of satirical elements in there. Um, so this imagery of the cattle repenting, it's just intensifying the satire. So it's okay to laugh at this part. Um, chickens and sackcloth is always funny, if you're ever in doubt. Um, but these big actions, you know, and again, remember, Jonah is all about, you know, a big fish, the big city of Nineveh, these big acts of repentance, but they're done without a guarantee as to the outcome. Um, The Ninevites have no idea if God's going to relent. They're just saying, who knows? We have no idea, but we will turn our lives. And maybe you're noticing by now that the response from the Ninevites is very different from Jonah's in the last chapter. You know, God speaks and Jonah runs away. He gets on a boat, And he's apathetic. His repentance is kind of meh. He goes to Nineveh, and his, his word to them is kind of meh. It's very mild in comparison to the Ninevites who hear this one word from God and, you know, basically fall to the ground, tear off their clothes, and start repenting and mourning right there on the spot. And this messes with our expectations because we've set up Nineveh as this evil city. Like, they're supposed to be the bad guys in this story, and yet, wow, they're repenting better than Jonah is. And if we remember back to earlier weeks, um, there was a repeating theme with the word down. You know, Jonah goes below the deck of the boat, he descends into the sea, he goes deep into the belly of the fish. Um, And this time in chapter 3, we come back to the idea of down, but it's a little different. That theme is flipped, and we see this repeating idea of upside down. I'm not talking about stranger things. It's a great show, but um, not that kind of upside down. But this idea of like our expectations being turned upside down. Um, because in a massive city like Nineveh, any type of big change is going to come from the top down. It's going to come from your king. It's going to come from your ruler. But instead, when Jonah shows up to Nineveh, it's the people who start this repentance. It starts in those streets with the lowest of the low people, the people who have no status. 
They're the ones turning to God first. And then the king goes and joins in on that. And then he intensifies the repentance. He says, yeah, everyone, every part of your household, your, you know, your, your wife, your children, your, your chickens, um, enter into this. But the king, he himself, who has this high position, he humbles himself, he steps down off the, um, the throne, and he tears his robes. And this isn't normal kingly behavior. But this is some of the upside-down nature of Jonah. And everything that seems normal isn't normal here, including the behavior of God's spokesman, uh, Jonah. This world is turned upside down. Back in uh, verse 10, we see that God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And so we see that repentance is not just for Israel. It extends beyond race and culture. And that's a big deal for Israel. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know they've been a nation set apart, chosen by God, and uh, that's the story they grew up living. Like we're the chosen ones, and so this act of God, His compassion, is really challenging some of those beliefs for them. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why Jonah is so resistant to go. I mean, it's there's bad blood between Nineveh and Israel, definitely, but also it's this: What do you mean, God, to offer a you know, for them to turn, like, to offer repentance to them, why would we do that? Like, they're not Israelites. They're the others. Um, And so God is really flipping that idea for Jonah. Like, it's not just for Israel. It's not just for the in crowd. It's not just for the chosen people. But my grace and mercy extends to all. And this message isn't just for Jonah specifically, but it's for Israel. You know, if you think of who would be reading this book to begin with, it would have been Israel. So this is challenging a lot of their deeply held beliefs. But what's interesting is, since 200 AD, the book of Jonah has been read during Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish Day of Atonement. And it's specifically read because um, it shows such a good example of what true repentance looks like. And uh, so what's interesting is that not only did God save these people and extend mercy to them, but he also used them as an example for, for Israel, as like, this is how you should fast. This is how you should repent. So the example isn't from, you know, good Israelites. The example is from the outsiders in Nineveh. And so their repentance is used um, during the Jewish faith as part of one of their more significant holy days, which... That stands out to me, because again, that's just, there's something very subversive about that. Um, But at the end of the day, the fact that God has compassion and mercy on these people, that's good news. Like, they're literally saved, and this is worth celebrating, and man, I wish this was the end of the story, because doesn't that feel like a good, natural end to the story? And if you ever grew up in the church, this is probably where it ended for you, and most kids' Bibles, they end right here, like, Nineveh repented. God said, "Cool, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna relent." But uh, and he, the painter Mark Chagall actually painted a series of uh, works on Jonah, which should be coming up here in a second. Yeah, it's an interesting series. So it's kind of showing Jonah and the boat. It's lovely, isn't it? Jonah with a fish. It's not a whale. It's a fish. So interesting kind of representation of that. And the last painting in the series shows Jonah with his staff going off to finally give his word to Nineveh. But that's, that's it. That's, that's where the story ends often. And that's what the story often ends for us when we hear it told. But the subversive nature of Jonah reveals that 
uh, reveals itself once again in chapter 4, that there's a bigger story at play. And Brad's going to share more about that next week, but if I was to give you the film preview version of Jonah, chapter 4, this is what it would be. In a world where God has compassion on a city, one man mopes, complains, and yells at God, Jonah. (laughs) So that's what's to come next week. But it's so interesting because God has mercy. And Jonah, he's angsty. And uh, Joseph Campbell, who's uh, informed a lot of people's ideas about story and mythology, he talks about the hero's journey. And this is the basic storyline we see in most movies, most uh, books, uh, most TV shows, where you have a hero or a protagonist who sets out on a journey, but is plagued along the way by the antagonist, who we often will uh, call the bad guy, but sometimes the antagonist is just the opposing force. Um, And the ultimate journey is about transformation for the hero. You know, Star Wars is such a great example. Um, Episode four for those purists, but for me it'll always be just Star Wars because they didn't have numbers before before then. So so Luke Skywalker sets on this journey um, to return a droid to Princess Leia. And along the way, he meets Darth Vader, spoiler alert, who turns out to be his dad. Um, I figure if the movie's 40 years old, that can't be that much of a spoiler, right? Um, And so Luke started his story thinking, I just want to get off Tatooine, this dusty planet. I'm tired of this place. I want to make a name for me. I want to be known. I want to be great. And so he goes and gets thrown into this this story, this adventure. Um, And along the way, he learns that it's not just about him leaving home. It's not just about him getting a name for himself. It's actually his real journey is about helping to bring peace to the galaxy, which he does throughout subsequent films. But that's the interesting thing of what we see in a story, and we're so used to that storyline of, like, the hero goes off on his journey, and then by the end, it's happily ever after, right? He learns what he's supposed to learn, and all is good. And then we start over again. We start on the next journey. And so we're so familiar with this structure without even knowing it. And just like the original readers and hearers of this story would have been. So, like, if we're watching a movie, say and there's a guy and a girl, and they meet, say, in a grocery store. They both want the same uh, piece of fruit, and they get really angry at each other, and they kind of, you can tell they don't like each other. Well, what's going to happen by the end of this story? They're going to end up in falling in love, right? We just know that. Or if you're watching another film, and a teenage uh, girl goes down a dark set of stairs, goes into the basement, we know she's not coming out alive. <laughs> like, we might be yelling at the scream, girl, get out of there. You are about to get killed. But we, we are so familiar with the stories without even knowing it. Um, and so the writer of Jonah knows this, and so is playing on this idea for us. Because when we start off uh, Jonah chapter 1, you know, we, we see this man of God, we see this prophet, we've read other prophetic books, we have expectations of what's going to happen. Like, okay, so God's going to give a word to Jonah, and he's going to give the word. But uh, the book of Jonah doesn't play by those rules. Because even though he's a prophet, and we assume he's godly, our first experience of him is turning around the moment God says, go do this. And he goes, nope, I got this boat over here, I think I'd rather do that. Um, And he's doing these things that we wouldn't expect from a prophet, right? I mean, I think we all have in our mind an idea of like what a prophet's supposed to be. Like, usually faithful to God is pretty high up on the list. Um... And then even when we come to the big action piece of the story, when Jonah finally is doing what God has called him to do, to confront the Ninevites, 
and the Ninevites at this point, like, we've kind of seen as the bad guys. Like, oh, they're brutal. Like, yeah, like, they're rough. They might, they might like, do something really bad to Jonah if he shows up. And there's bad blood between them and Israel. Like, we have this expectation that they're going to be the bad guys. And yet, they respond and react so differently. They repent as if their lives depend on it. Because their lives did. Um, and so you see this wholehearted repentance, and it's not just there's this placating way like Jonah, but he's, like, they mean it. And if we look at Jonah and the Ninevites, we have to ask ourselves the question, what's the main difference between them? And it's humility. Um, the Ninevites, and even the sailors earlier on in this book, um, they're confronted with their sin, and they don't get on a boat and run away. They repent wholeheartedly. They humble themselves before God. They mourn and ask for God's mercy, and they turn away from their former way of life. They, the evil Ninevites, the ones we normally would be booing, are acting more righteously than Jonah, this supposedly righteous man of God. So talk about our expectations being turned upside down. Uh, And if we're looking for a New Testament touch point, the Good Samaritan's a great example. And in the Good Samaritan, a man is beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road. And who walks by but a priest? Well, we know who priests are, so priest, of course, he's going to come help this poor man. Nope, he keeps walking. And then a Levite walks by. Well, surely he'll stop. We know who Levites are. Like, they're, they're godly people. They take the law of the Lord very seriously. The Levite keeps walking. And then a Samaritan man comes by, and the Samaritans are this religious sect that uh, aren't very popular in Jerusalem, to say the least. And he's the one who stops and saves this man's life. Uh, you know, it's basically these two, ver- uh, these two different stories are subverting our expectations for the purpose of making a point. And just like in Jonah, there, there's a point trying to be made by subverting our expectations. So what's the point? Because we can easily read Jonah and kind of put him into one of two categories. We can s- ignore all of his faults, kind of make him Sunday school Jonah, uh, and just try to make this an easier, cleaner story and give us our happily ever after, like, everyone's saved, yay! Um, or we can just go hardcore into Jonah trashing, like, oh, Jonah, that guy, he's the worst. Like, did you see how he ran away from God? Did you see how he gave a meh message? As we'll see in chapter four, do you see how he gets angry and spiteful towards God's mercy? But actually, the invitation for us isn't to see Jonah as either of these things, but it's actually an invitation for us to see Jonah as he is and for us to see ourselves through Jonah. Because this book is actually holding a mirror up to us, the followers of God. And we might be more like Jonah than we care to admit. And as I've been sitting and reading through this book, I keep finding myself resonating with these reactions and responses from Jonah. Because the older I get... uh, it's easier for me to fall into anger and bitterness. I can look down on people with apathy. Um, it's easier sometimes for me to look down on people um, I see as wicked rather than pray for their redemption, rather than offer the love of God to them, rather to see them as humans, to identify with them, and to return to the truth that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a lot easier to write them off or to run away or to disconnect from God. And, uh, and maybe you're all thinking of times in your life when you've done that. And I think we can see these big overt ways, like Jonah, where he gets on a boat. 
but probably more realistically, this is something that's going on at an internal level for us. You know, I might not chew out someone on Facebook. I might not yell at the person down the street I disagree with holding up a sign. But uh, my mind is still overflowing with insults of hatred towards that person. It's kind of the same. You know, I was given a glimpse of my heart back in 2006. I did this trip to Syria uh, with the missions uh, missions team through my church in England. And we were visiting this campus. And Syria at the time was a lot safer than it is now. So it wasn't like, I wasn't in immediate danger being there. But it still had a bit of that, we're five years out of 9-11. And the Iraq war is happening. And at that time in the U.S., the Middle East kind of just got lumped all together instead of seeing the unique countries that existed in that region. So I came in thinking, like, all right, like, we're going to bring the love of Jesus. And we were meeting a lot of people. We went to this college campus, and a couple of students who spoke English showed us around and were just being very lovely and gracious to us. And one of the women walked us back to our bus. And she specifically looked at me. I was uh, one of two Americans on our team. And she looked at me and said, I hope you know that we're not all terrorists. And her words stopped me because... A, it was shocking and blunt. But her words revealed something in my heart at that moment because I realized all of a sudden, I have such bias towards these people. I keep expecting them to show me harm. Even though for the whole time I was in Syria, I was shown nothing but hospitality from the people I met. Um, You know, in Syria, it's pretty uh, common. If you meet someone on the street, they welcome you into their house. They give you refreshment. Um, That happened to me multiple times where I was welcomed in as a stranger. I've never welcomed a stranger into my house. Uh, Life goal, right? Uh, But that's just not part of our culture. And so I went into this country kind of assuming that these people were going to try to harm me. And instead I received so much love. And my bias was blinding me to the beauty of their culture. Um, And that woman's statements opened me up to a different kind of story. A different kind of story where maybe these aren't just people who hate me because I'm American, but maybe these are people who are just trying to live a normal life to support their family and to be safe. And uh, her words still stick with me to this day to be like open to like, what are the hidden things in my heart that are stopping me from loving others around me, that are um, making me see myself as separate from them rather than human with them? And these kind of truthful glimpses of our hearts are so humbling. And our temptation is to think that the story ends there. Like, sometimes when we follow God for a long time and we do something that feels especially bad, we're like, oh man, this is it. This is the thing. This is where the penny finally drops. This is where God says, enough is enough. Like, I can't forgive that. Like, this is, this, this is the story we tell ourselves of, surely God can't be that forgiving, that kind. And, uh... What we kind of find out is, as much as we think that the story ends there, it doesn't end there. Because this story about Jonah isn't about Jonah's lack of faith or his lack of compassion. It's actually about who our God is. That's what the story of Jonah is about. Because even in Jonah's unfaithfulness, even in our unfaithfulness, God is overflowing with faithfulness. Even in Jonah's pride and his lack of compassion, in our pride... In our lack of compassion, uh, God is overflowing with compassion and mercy. Psalm 145, 8 to 9 proclaims, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. 
And so we might have a reputation for being brutal like the Ninevites. We might run away when God calls us to reach out to our enemies. We might turn a blind eye. We might say yes and then grumble along. But the story doesn't end there because God is compassionate with us. He works despite our efforts. He uses the little we have to offer, our five-worded message of woe, uh, and he makes it something greater. He will not be stopped because we're actually not that powerful. Psalm 103.14 reminds us, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Sometimes we think that I'll finally do it. I'll mess up God's plans. I'll run on this boat and uh, I'll mess everything up. And God's like, no, I will still work. I will still do what I'm going to do. Uh, there's a musician named Sufjan Stevens, and he, he's a bit of an unusual musician, but I do enjoy his stuff. And he has a song called Seven Swans. Um, and it's a very weird song. It's apocalyptic lyrics, and you're, it kind of feels like it's talking about the end of the world. But there's this great line halfway through. Um, and this line has stuck with me throughout the years. It goes, he will take you if you run He will chase you, because he is the Lord. Let me say this one more time, because I think some people need to hear this today. He will take you. If you run, he will chase you, because he is the Lord. So friends, whether you're like the Ninevites and responding faithfully, or whether you're like Jonah, running away, half-heartedly repenting, bitter and angry at God's mercy, You can't stop who God is. Because he will chase after you and he will run after you. He will not relent because of his great love for you, for me, for us, for Ballard, for our neighbors, and even our enemies. That's who our God is. And he is the hero of our story and a hero we can trust. I'm going to give us a couple minutes to reflect on uh, this passage today. And there's a couple questions coming up on the screen. And I just want to invite you to just take a couple minutes just to sit with these questions, to ask yourself, how do I see myself through this passage? God, how do you see me? And God, how do I see your character on display? And so just take a couple minutes just to sit with that and ask the Lord and see what his invitation is for you today.